Hello and welcome to Demon Cast His Dark Materials Episode 8, Betrayal. I'm Sarah. And I'm Chris. And I nearly forgot what my name was. Well, that's a brilliant start. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Off to a rolling standstill as usual. Yeah. It's been a strange day. It's been an extremely strange day. <laughs> Do you want to tell us what you've, we've been doing today, Chris? Well, we, we went out for a meal with my parents because it's my dad's birthday. Happy birthday, Dad. 23rd of December. That's kind of poor timing, right? Yeah, I mean, I feel sorry for anyone who has a December birthday in general, like myself, but one's really close to Christmas and New Year's. Yeah, I like, feel like you probably get shafted on gifts a lot massively. of the time. Yeah. And on doing stuff as well, because it's got to be like Christmas themed, basically, yeah. and where you go to eat or whatever. Which is kind of what happened today. We went for <laughs> midday Golden Year's carvery lunch at a notoriously, mm, let's call it mediocre, I don't want to be saying poor quality pub, because, you know, it's Christmas, let's be generous and call it mediocre. Yeah. Because it was more or less apparently the only thing my mum could book. Yeah. And we saw a Shaking Stevens tribute act. <laughs> now, most of you won't know who Shaking Stevens is. Shaking Stevens, it turns out, was the highest selling British recording artist of the 1980s. He outsold Depeche Mode. He outsold The Cure. He outsold Bross. He outsold Bros. Simple Mind, like what is going on? Level 42, no, YouTube, no, no, Shaking Stevens was the number one. But what he specialised in was sort of like mediocre rock and roll music. Yeah, and covers mostly of other people's mediocre rock and roll. You know, you want some Buddy Holly made even blander? We got you covered, Shaky's here. (laughs) So this guy, who was a kind of a cover of a cover act, essentially. Yeah. Um, he was he was quite a good, bless him. He was giving it his. He had his, you know, his like entertainer blazer on. Oh yeah, his bright pink. Which he changed jacket. to red after we'd had dinner as well. Oh yes, because he did two sets. Yes. He did a, a sort of during dinner and an after dinner set because you cannot get enough of an impersonation of Shaking Stevens. <laughs> <laughs> but it was we were the youngest people there by quite some years. Yeah. But it was actually quite fun. It got me quite in the Christmas mood. Because we had like, you know, our crackers and our hats and everything. Yeah. Like everyone was doing a little dance in their seats. We had a nice like carvery lunch. So it was just like massive. I mean, I, I, I would say I quite enjoyed it overall. It was unbelievably surreal. I think we both left it with a sense of otherworldliness, which is quite appropriate, really. Yeah. We, <laughs> we stepped through a portal into kind of our future as OAPs, basically. I, I don't know if it's our future as <laughs> OAPs as such. I, I suspect maybe I suspect maybe when we're that age, we'll be going to see like Robbie Williams. Oh, no. Tributes. I don't like Robbie Williams now. Yeah, I know, but you'll have older. to pretend to later because it'll be the only thing any of us can remember by the time we're 70 and uh. we've, you know, been dragged through 35 years of post-Brexit hell. Mm. Anyway, let's not get political. Let's get on with the podcast. What did you think of this episode? Well, we I came mean, to it's it... a big finale, yeah, right? Yeah, and we actually came to it a bit late. Like, you'd think we'd, we'd have been definitely, like 
desperate it. to watch it. But what actually happened was that we forgot. We went to go and see well, Star to be fair, Wars you, you say we forgot. We didn't forget at all. We arranged to go and see Star Wars and went, it is the finale of his Dark Materials, but it's also the finale of Star Wars. What's bigger? Let's be honest. Yeah. So sorry for that, our fun. Yeah. <laughs> are we, are well, we, we don't need podcast? to know this. Why are you apologising? This podcast's going to actually be the first one that goes out on time in weeks with all of our holidays and stuff. Oh, you could just pretend that we never betrayed HDM for Star Wars. Yeah, but what I want to kind of get across is how surreal it is. Yeah, like sort of the final three. of a Star Wars film and then going, then watching HDM. I was like, I'm too finale. Like, I was, I was dead awake when I'd finished that and I was just like buzzing. And it was pretty good, right? I mean, mm. I quite liked it. And, you know... You mean Star Wars film? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I quite like the HDM finale, but I think it's difficult to come back and watch an episode of TV and sort of especially a sort of science fantasy mm-hmm. uh, special effects type TV show when you've just watched like a, what is it, probably three, four hundred million dollar Hollywood movie. <laughs> like, you know... But I did enjoy HDM. Yes. Um, I don't think... I was worried, actually, that Star Wars would kind of, I don't know, almost taint my expectations for a couple of days, but it didn't. Yeah. It was just being silly. Yeah. And, and I think, overall, the episode felt reasonably well-paced. Yeah. In general, it was another one where we got to spend a bit more time with certain characters, and I do think it works better. I think the show works better when we get a little time with characters and we're not trying to weave too many concurrent subplots and... Yeah, I say it was interesting for me because I've just been going over um, the last bit of the the book of Northern Lights to finish off my notes ready for when we record for that episode. Mm. So it's all coming together at the end, and it felt very weird finishing all of that and yeah. being like, "Oh, I mean, we're, we're f- to compare to and stuff." Finishing the TV series, finishing the first book for our other mm-hmm. side to this podcast, and we finished Star Wars. <sighs> I mean, talk about everything that has a beginning. Yeah, <laughs> at least we've got the subtle knife. Yeah, and the amber spyglass. Yes. Who knows if that will actually get adapted into a TV show now. I saw the viewing figures for the finale last <gasps> oh, night. Oh no, they're bad. I mean, they're not terrible, but it's like four million. It's lost almost half its audience. It debuted at like seven million. Wow. And now it's down to like four. Of course, people will watch On Demand and catch up later yeah. on. But, you know, viewing has dropped. They've already got the second season in the can so I would assume they would definitely air that otherwise it's a total write-off but unless that pulls in a bit more of a stable audience base who knows whether the third one will get commissioned of course it does depend on how well it's doing in the states as well yeah on the HBO connection Mm. I hope it continues but we'll see yeah we start off this episode in the north with a, a flight would you call it a flotilla probably not of airships flying in yeah, the soldiers of the Magisterium are kind of preparing for battle. I think it's really interesting that we, they've done a bit of a, and this is probably coming into my head because of the Star Wars, they've done a bit of a stormtrooper here and we, we don't ever see their faces. They are kind of faceless. Covered up. I was going to say drones, you know what I mean. Yeah, faceless people. You can't empathise with people whose faces you can't see and you're not men. Also really good for budget because you can recycle the same few extras and stunt people again and yeah. again. You don't have to have too many uh, That's cast That's probably members. all the catering stuff and stuff. Could be, yeah. Just people like who... get Barry who drives the trailers to come and stand with some ski goggles and a mask on and we'll be right. It's 50 quid, Barry. You've always wanted to be a soldier. He loves it. He's like getting his family around. Look, there's me. That's me. Third from the left. <laughs> I wonder how many people couldn't identify themselves after those scenes were shot. Like, which one was I again? (laughs) (laughs) But we're flying north. The Magisterium 
army, I guess you could call it, has been mobilised. Yeah. We know they're definitely not the Tartar Wolf Regiment now because some of them have got bird demons sat on their shoulders and yeah. stuff. That's also, going to jump straight in with a weapon watch. Mm. Uh, we see their little submachine guns they're carrying. Those are MP40s, favoured submachine gun of the Third Reich. And and I, I that do, is not an accident. You, no. no. <laughs> I think we can establish by now that the historically significant weaponry is definitely good work on the part of the armourer. <laughs> yeah, that's that's kind of nice. That's something I wouldn't have picked up on, but it's nice that they've put those details in, I think. Yeah. Um, someone's giving an encouraging... I think it's Father McPhail from the Sound of the Voice giving a encouraging speech over the PA system, mm. a bit of a rousing speech a about the authority yeah. and all of that. We get a lot more mentions of the authority this time, and we kind of get... Probably for the TV series, the first definitive explanation of what the authority is, which is kind of cool. That comes a bit later. Although, you know, mentioning it in the last episode, it might have been. Yeah, I don't know whether people would 100% know what the authority was from the early mentions of it. But this episode sets it out loud and clear. Yeah, it does. Uh, Mrs. Coulter loads her gun, so she is ready to go. Mrs. Coulter kind of discussed in the last episode about, you know, getting rid of Lord Asbury. So I think we're meant to think there that she's, that's what she's loading that gun for. That yep. gun is there for him. That's that's a bullet with Asriel's name on it. Yeah. I indeed. think so. And then we go to Lord Asriel, who is looking at equations. That is the prettiest, like, whiteboard I've ever seen. He's got it perfectly placed in front of his mountain. Yeah. Well, he's basically drawing on the window, isn't he? It reminds me a bit of Dr. House when they used to draw on the windows of the office about what was wrong with their patient. You're kind of like, hang on a minute, isn't that confidential patient? I was going to say, terrible GDPR. Like, <laughs> uh, data protection are going to be down on you. They used to do it a lot in CSI as well. <laughs> like, I, I had never, in all my years in academia seen anyone write on a window before but apparently that's what we do maybe you should start doing it scientists maybe i should i think no one would care really i think that'd be okay it'd be very easy to steal my research wouldn't it Mm. were one so inclined yeah (laughs) but he's talking to stelmaria and i quite like this because we get the use of stelmaria to be almost like his inner monologue because they're sort of in agreement with each other so it's Mm. a nice way of hearing his his inner thoughts and i think that maybe that's something they could have done more upon reflection Mm. in the series because it's a really good device like you could use that really well as a televisual device the demons to kind of narrate people's thoughts yeah and that is what happens sometimes in the book. We get a little mm. bit of insight into what people's thoughts are via yeah. demons in their conversations. But yeah, Stelmaria points out the fact that the Aurora is strong. Um, she points out that the child has arrived. And Azrael points out that he knows. Mm. It's that time. it's time. Yeah. Dun, dun, dun. Titles! <laughs> so, um, like the titles, we now see at the end as the multiverse kind of condenses into that stringy pattern. Mm. Um, that they're, they're going to have used that sort of graphic elsewhere later on in the episode, aren't they? Which I thought was nice. Oh, I didn't notice this. Ah, when, oh. oh, should I say now or should I leave it till leave the it time? Leave it till later. Okay, put a pin in that. Yeah. So uh, after the titles, Pan and Lyra are sort of doing a, a kind of half-assed explore of Azriel's lab, tinkering with some of his stuff and wondering what it is. And Azriel's over at his workbench doing what Azriel does. Science, bitches. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, kind of vague science yes, things. Yes, yes. It's a lab. He's doing his sciences. Yeah. And they have a bit of a standoffish conversation about Yorick and Yoffa and the fact that Yorick's now king. 
Yeah, I mean, I'd say Lord Asriel does seem kind of impressed mm. about Lyra's relationship with Yorick Burnus. He does sort of ask, doesn't he, how did you get the King of the Panzerbjorn to, to be your chauffeur, essentially, <laughs> to be your personal protector? Mm. And they have a bit of a back and forth. She reveals now that she knows mm-hmm. that he's daddy. <laughs> Please don't say that. <laughs> okay. Should I cut that out? No, it's fine. <laughs> leave that cringe moment in, shall yeah. I? Yeah. Um, and she says she would have been proud to know. She's quite sad that he didn't mm. tell her. So she's still clinging to that idea that Azriel's heroic. Yeah. Just she's about. Going to be Not for disappointed. Much <laughs> <laughs> Tentatively, Lord Azriel asks, like, oh, you do know who your mother is, kind of thing. And then they have that little joke about his choice yeah. in bears and women. And I'm just like, what is that? Yeah, well, because well, he was kind of. I, th- I suppose the thing is, he didn't really back Yoffa, did he? But he got Yoffa on side. And called mm. her like he keeps picking the wrong ones. They have a bit of a giggle, and then he realizes they're getting a bit overly warm, and he's not got time for feelings, so he shuts it down. I felt like that whole bit was a little stilted. I didn't like the joke because I can't imagine in the kind of the relationship they have that she would drop a cash joke like that, and he would be like, "Lol, yeah." I mean, I suppose it's hard to know in the context of the series because they've not had that much interaction with yeah. each other. Maybe I'm thinking, maybe I'm thinking book-wise, mm. so that's fair. But still, I mean, and then this, that sudden switch, because he's like, I don't want to continue the conversation. This is too sentimental. Yeah. And it's like, it just suddenly goes. And I get that, that he's not meant to be a sentimental character, but... Or he's trying not to, to be, be, at least. But I suppose that's maybe the difference between this and the book. I think in the book, he very much isn't. Whereas in this, there is a sense that he is maybe masking his true feelings about yeah. it. So, I, I mean, I quite like that bit overall. I, the mm. joke was a little bit odd. It did feel a bit left field for a sort of 12 year old to say that to a recently discovered father. But I kind of liked the conversation a bit. I liked that they were trying to make it look like Asriel was trying to be colder than he was. Mm. Um, we haven't seen much of Asriel. It's nice to know there's some character there because I think he's going to be a more significant part of the next season mm. from what I've heard. I think we'll be doing a lot of like side cuts to Asriel. Yeah, what he's up to. So he does actually scold her when she begins to get upset about this, which really annoys me. I hate it when adults tell kids to like pull themselves together. It really. Oh yeah, D- just parents don't tell your children not to have emotions. It's extremely damaging. Take it from someone who knows. <laughs> yeah, it's it's bad. And um, she does kind of stand up to him a bit and says that because he calls her by her name, Lyra Balakwa, and she's like, "No, it's Silver Tongue now. That's my name. It was given to me by someone who loved me." More than can be said for you. Yeah. Sort of thing. She's adopted Silver Tongue as her name. And then uh, what she tries to sort of, I guess, extricate herself from the conversation a bit by presenting him with the alethiometer. Mm-hmm. And he just gives it back and says he doesn't need it. Lyra has a bit of a rage. I came all this way through the north, through the bears, through blood. All the things she's done in the last eight hours of television, basically. Yeah. I uh. think this didn't have a big emotional impact on me. This time, I think, probably because I know what's happening and blah, 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 mm. blah. But I think when the first time you read it, or maybe even the first time you watch it, maybe some of... Do you feel at this point a sort of sense of defeatism because you've been on this big journey and the whole goal of this journey has been to bring him this alethiometer and then when she finally does give it to him... He's like, no. Nah. Yeah. And he sort of says, no, but she's dead upset that he mm. doesn't want it. She says, you don't want it. And he says, I never said that. And she says, you call yourself a father... I rather think that's the point. I've never called myself a father. <sighs> Savage, but oh, that is that is real tough. 
but I would say that I think that conversation is softened slightly by that whole I wouldn't say I didn't want it thing because yeah. he does actually kind of imply there that he would like to keep it but he's letting her have it mm. whereas in the books it's a little bit more I just don't want that I've got no use for it that kind of makes sense because he can't read it so <laughs> you know like he yeah. probably doesn't want it <laughs> he probably does need it but doesn't yeah. want it is more the reality but I do think that for all of his faults he's not doing what Coulter did initially which is kind of lean on the fact that he's her parent to try and get his own way with her Mm. You know, Coulter tried to lean on the mother thing in uh, Bolvangar and, and get her own way. And he's at least not doing that. Yeah. He's being upfront about his lack of interest in her, which I think is better. Yes, possibly. Hmm. Although we do end up having to sort of question Coulter's motive. She appears to be warming to Lyra, but I guess we'll get to that. We will. Yeah. We will indeed. Um, Lyra leaves anyhow, and um, Lord Archwood is there, left there looking kind of pensive hmm. and brooding. Yeah, and then it's Airship and Coulter touching the monkey. But she's not just touching the monkey, she is hurting that monkey. Yeah, see I wasn't certain because it looked a bit like what she did to it in maybe episode two in her apartments when she's sort of talking to Lyra. You know, there's the bit that's familiar to the book fans, I guess, Mm. where she's angry and she sort of pinches the monkey's back, squeezes its fur. And I think that's what she's doing here. But I thought that's what she did in that earlier episode. And then we had a bit of a debate about, no, I think she's just petting it. Then I got to looking at their faces and I'm like, like, is she enjoying the pain? Is she hurting it or is she being nice to it? Like, there's definitely a kind of sadomasochistic thing going on there, I think. Well... How I read it was that, yeah, though her hand is in a similar place, she is deliberately hurting that monkey. And she, to me, looks scared and upset. Really? Yeah. And I would say that she is using that monkey as an outlet of her fear and things. She's sort of taking it out physically on it. And Mm -hmm. I misinterpreted her fear and upsetness for sexual pleasure. What kind of monster am I? Well, no, I kind of looked at it because she, I was like, okay, they look in pain, but then there's kind of like a shudder that's, I couldn't tell if it was meant to be pleasure or not. Maybe I was reading too much into it. It's kind of like, is is she kind of just like, does she enjoy hurting herself? Is this a self-flagellation thing? Like you get in that there Da Vinci Code series of books. (laughs) Oh yeah. Yeah. No, I I saw it as, um, yeah, a way of her expressing her. Her rage and her well, less less rage, but more fear. I thought in this mm. and confusion, and her not having a way of being able to deal with those emotions. And because therefore... I suppose it's odd to think of Courtney as afraid. Mm. Not really seeing much sign of fear in her at all. I guess to me, I would just assume that like everybody has the ability to be afraid. Otherwise, we kind of what drives us most, I suppose, in the world is kind of a lot through fear or say like someone who's um like money hungry for instance or something they're driven by the fear of being poor the fear of not being kind of respected by people because of the lack of money or whatever yeah does that make sense you're very much of the philosophy that people are driven by the stick not the carrot yeah a little bit yeah i think people are i don't think people always necessarily understand that that's what it is Mm. People push it down. Fear's not a very friendly emotion, is it? <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> Fear's not a very an emotion that a lot of people want to face up to. And I think that's partly what's happened to Mrs. Coulter, maybe. Very interesting. And here was me just thinking she was a bit pervy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just fascinated by Mrs. Coulter because I think she is a damaged person. Oh, yeah, undoubtedly. And, yeah, she's just got me fascinated. I think yeah. she's doing these terrible things, but then 
oh, there seems to be a lot behind it. Mm. There's a lot going on here. I mean, I think that speaks to one of the great strengths of the TV series, which is the characterisation of some of the characters. I've really enjoyed it. Maybe is a little different than the book, but it's been very convincing. Mm. And I've been quite on board with it. Yeah. But anyway... Sorry, Court was on her air shit. Yeah. I'll leave Mrs. Courtle behind. It's just because I do feel like, sorry, I'm just going to apologise for saying it and then continue to talk about her. Okay. But one last thing. I think it's really interesting that you get a lot of Asriel stands. People really, even though he does terrible things, still love Lord Asriel. But you don't seem to get the same kind of thing from Mrs. Coulter. Well, I, I mean, I think that almost culturally we are trained to value traits of aggression in men and coldness and focus and drivenness. Mm. Um, that is a quote unquote proper way for a male leader to behave, for example. Mm. There might be something in that. Like, you know, you ever wondered why so many massive companies and indeed countries are run by sociopaths? Probably because we think it's okay for men to be sociopaths. <laughs> ah. <laughs> it's not going to be political. No, not at all. <laughs> So now we've analysed that tiny scene to death. Yes. <laughs> um, Father MacPhail comes in to talk to her. Uh, they discuss the kind of the coming fight that's going to happen with Lord Asriel. He kind yep. of emphasises the fact that, you know, this has got to be done. Yeah. Just in case we weren't... Certain. Done. Yeah. <laughs> and Mrs Coulter actually asserts that she's not afraid of his work in the way that everyone else is. So everyone in the magisterium, it seems to be terrified of what he's doing but she is not afraid of it she is i think she might be afraid of a lot of other things but that is not something that she's scared about she's intrigued i think yeah she they also discuss sin and she says that his sin is envy and that he's envious of the kind of single-mindedness and focus that she and Asriel have mm-hmm. which I, I don't really necessarily think he is i think that she was right when she asked if his sin was lust <laughs> yeah because he looks hella lusty for her yeah he does although father mcphail does also before that little bit of conversation happens he does question the power that asriel has over his uh, yeah indicates that she bailed on the magisterium when she met him well on her marriage because she had a good marriage before that and things seemed to be going well and she was gaining, you know, she had you know, a good position and things were going well and then she just melted and then she's like, I did not melt. <laughs> so I would say at this point, Mrs. Coulter is sort of psychologically intimidating Father MacPhail because she clearly gets to him. Yeah, she does. But I mean, he obviously has a lot more, technically a lot more power than she does within the magisterium and kind of physically in terms of like the army and whoever's at his command. But she manages to get to him. She gets yeah, under she does. his skin. And maybe by virtue of the fact that she's always needed, even though he does have more power, he can't really do anything to her. Yeah. Uh, but he had the opportunity to send her back to see the elbow cardinal, you know, and he chose to keep her there. Yeah. So that's kind of his own fault. Yeah, and Mrs. Coulter claims that she's the best weapon they'll ever have, and I think that probably does sum it up. And think, he probably yeah. knows that as well. Although, given what he's just said about Lord Asriel, I'd also be like, but is she though? Yeah, well, yeah, she's their most powerful weapon, but unfortunately it would appear that Asriel might be the countermeasure to that weapon. Yes, exactly. So then we are back at the Magisterium. Mm. Bory was meeting Philip Havel to get his uh, alethiometer reading. It feels like a lot of conversations that happen in the Magisterium are done in that one bit of corridor. Mm. Like they they just meet in that bit of corridor for a bit of a walk and a chat. Yeah, they do. 
they they go to the corridor. There's the kind of big assembly room, or there's mm. that weird little almost the like, coffin room. Yeah, exactly, like the little kind of funeral parlor room. Uh, and we then didn't really bit of corridor, but it's yeah. always the same bit of corridor. It is the corridors of power, as they say. Yes, mm. and. Uh, Lord Boreal is demanding an update on his uh, alethiometer question. Yeah, and Fra Pavel's got some answers. Yeah. He's not convinced they make sense, but they make sense to Boreal. Yeah. Basically, it's shown him a tower surrounded by angels, which houses a knife. And Grumman, as he still calls him, or John... Parry. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> John Parry's son is going to lead him there. He's going to lead Boreal there. And I think yeah. Boreal's surprised at that, probably expected it to say something about the letters. He discovers the letters aren't as significant in his future as well. Yeah. Fra Pavel is, is quite like funny in this bit because he's like, oh, well, you know, Grimmer didn't have a son. Did you need me to ask another question? Or And then Loborough's like, no, no, no. Makes sense to me. Bye. And then gets looks all flustered and leaves. We can only assume to do something to do with Will. Yeah, go find Will. Go find that knife. Back to the lab again. Oops, there goes gravity. Thorold seems concerned <laughs> about Lyra's lack of a toothbrush. <laughs> it's good to know that somebody cares about Lyra's dental needs because if there's one thing that this is like missing... It's, it's it dentistry. Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't agree more. What we need is kind of a pervy dentist like you sometimes get in spy movies and stuff. You know, they is always... that a thing? Yeah, like they always have a torturer that's kind of a dentist. Okay. We probably don't need that, but Thorold is worried that she might need a toothbrush. Mm-hmm. Okay. Asriel says, don't worry, Magisterium's going to be here soon and I'm out of here. Yeah. Like, I'm off to fight big fights. He's in search of the enemy, not just the little um, one yeah. that is Magisterium, but something bigger than that. Well, I'm not content with fighting the evil empire of our world. I'm going to find something even harder to fight. On my own. But he does ask Thorold to keep Lyra safe. Yeah, and Thorold does point out to him that he should probably say goodbye to Lyra at the yeah. very least <laughs> Lord Astriel like he doesn't seem to care yeah but he does actually go to say goodbye to her then Later so on. yeah you know he does care maybe Possibly. a little mm. or maybe he wants to do the right thing he's just drawn badly yeah <laughs> Lyra's taking a bath she always seems sad when she's in the bath I've noticed my children don't really like bathing do they I didn't very much when I was a kid I see I quite liked baths but I was afraid of the shower why were you afraid of the shower? It was just very, like, loud and coming from above. <laughs> I don't know. I just really didn't like it much. Prefer baths for oh, a long see, time. I always liked showers better. Maybe by yeah. 12 I didn't mind bathing, but as a little yeah. kid I hated it. Well, you can take your time in the bath as well. You can just kind of sit there for a bit. Yeah, sit in your own filth as it floats yep. around you, wasting litres and litres of water. <laughs> well, I was only a kid. It's I all your know. fault. Global warming, you did it. Yeah. <laughs> So yeah, Lyra is taking a bath. She, like in this other scene where she's in the bath, she looks, looks quite sad. Yeah. Pan is just, his cuteness in this episode is just on form again. Yeah, yeah, through He's the roof. Ridiculous. Off cute. the charts. Though he never seems to get in the bath. You think maybe he would need a wash as well. Do demons get dirty? Would he bath himself the way animals bath themselves? That is true. How, How much more would it cost to animate a wet fur demon? Mm. Yeah, entirely new fur model for that. Yeah. That's some, some whole new level of fluid dynamics. I mean, you know. Just not thinking it through, am I? No, you're, you're not thinking like someone who has to manage the budget of this show. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, Pan sort of is comforting Lyra. Yeah. Uh, from the side of the bath and telling her that they they don't need Lord Asriel. Yeah. He's being the comforter. He does that quite a lot in this episode. He is the um, emotional support 
demon. Yeah, they are the OG <laughs> emotional support animal. Um, Roger comes in to talk to her. I really like the fact when they're walking backwards, especially Salcilia. Yeah. And she's just doing a little like backwards like poddle. Yeah, so they don't see her in the bath. Oh. And uh, he says he's been spooked by Azrael's behaviour. Yeah. Everyone has, Roger. Everyone has. <laughs> um, he says he's noticed a change in his demeanour and he likens him to... Well, a change in his demeanour when he saw him as opposed to Lyra. Yes. And, yeah, likens him to a wolf. Mm. This is quite different from the books in that Roger hasn't got a foggiest, basically. Yeah, he's a little bit oblivious to most of what happens around him, isn't he? Yeah. Don't want to say dim, but... Simple? Yeah. More childlike, maybe. Yes, I'd say more childlike. That's probably a better way of putting it yeah. um, than, than Lyra is. He doesn't kind of seem to speak quite as much. They do, in some ways, I think, show the bond between Lyra and Roger better in this. Yeah. They seem closer. Particularly in this episode. Mm-hmm. And they discuss the fact that Asriel now knows that Lyra knows that Asriel's Lyra's father. <laughs> <laughs> and that's not going as well as perhaps Lyra no. wanted it to. And he does say that the thing he always liked was that they had that orphanship in common and they can go back to pretending yeah, that she's to an orphan yeah. if she likes. Oh, because he is an actual orphan, isn't yeah. he? Yeah. So. Or, well, is he an orphan or was it that his parents abandoned him? I can't remember. I thought his parents gave him over to his auntie because she worked at Jordan and they couldn't afford him, something like that. I cannot remember that. Pretty sure that was it. I mean, it's been weeks and weeks since we read that part of the book. (laughs) (laughs) It's all a blur. But yeah, I mean, I think that in any case, Lyra seems okay with that. And I noticed that as the scene ends after Roger has sort of said that, Pan and Lyra look at each other and Pan gives a little nod. Is that Pan saying, yeah, let's do that, Lyra. Hmm. Let's pretend Azrael's gone. I mean, it will be soon. Yeah. Uh, Will's house in the yeah. middle of our street. There. Boreal and pale-faced moustache man are discussing the death of the hacker. And essentially, Boreal is just putting it all on pale-faced moustache guy and saying, yeah, like... I, I feel... I mean, I know moustache man is kind of a baddie, but at this point, I feel really sorry for him. I wanted to be like, hang on a minute, Boreal. Like, at what point was any of this his fault? Yeah. Because it kind of wasn't. Ah, but it's typical villainy, isn't it? This is your fault. You're in real trouble now, so you'd better be double good at being bad mm. or else. He tells him off for letting Will go, despite the fact that he basically didn't tell him Will was important. He just told them to get the letters. Yeah. <laughs> That's an unreasonable boss right it's, there. It's you, Boreal. You're the fool. Yes. But uh, Paleface is pretty keen to get him back on side. I mean, I guess to be fair, if your boss was an interdimensional being with a sort of weird snake monster for a a companion and so on mm. you'd be a little bit wary of pissing them off yeah that's true it does beg the question of like how the hell did he get to know him I mean you could definitely ask that of Boreal and both of his contacts like mm. did Boreal just kind of rock up and go hey I'm from another world it's like this one but not the same how did Do you he get see his fancy snake? car that's the well I mean we've question. definitely discussed that before like it's hard to get paperwork for a car in Britain yeah. you can't just rock up and show the dealie a snake and be like yeah DVLA are going to be cool with this right yeah but, I mean, I guess if your friend is a hacker, your friend can probably fake that your identity. Yeah. And then this other guy, where he's come from, who knows? We'll kind of find out more about who he is soon. But mm. I guess we may never know quite how Boreal hooked up with them both. Moustache mm. mm. Man, you call him Paleface, I call him Moustache Man, asks what he should do now. He's kind of, like, desperate to, to kind of please him. And Lord Boreal's like, well, you got to find him. got to find, find him, him and get rid of that body. Body, Yeah. 
moustache man guesses that as Will is a bit of a loner, he's probably... Wandering the streets Drees. of Oxford. Yes, yeah, Which basically. is pretty spot on as it turns out. Yes. And then pale face man goes back to his car. Yeah. Picks up a radio and it turns out he's a cop. And not only that, his name is D.I. Waters, so yeah, we have a name for him now. He's a detective inspector, so I, he's a relatively highly ranked cop. He's not just a beat cop. I did actually quite like that little reveal. I thought I that did. was quite nifty. I was like, ooh. I didn't see that coming, because all the way along, you're kind of like, well, I, I get why the hacker's here. I get what a hacker does. Mm-hmm. What does Mustache Man do? Is he just like a hitman? Is he just a person of little conscience? Which, I mean, every villain needs a thug, right? Yeah. But no, he's a cop. Yeah. So it he, does kind of beg the question... When Will's mum was sort of having her meltdowns and showing up at the school and stuff, could he not have just, like, phoned that in and said they'd received a complaint about, like, a hysterical woman and then, you know, arrested her and been, you know, why are you freaking out? Why are you acting so cray-cray? But then maybe they wouldn't have wanted to be too kind of visible in that situation. Yeah, I think maybe they want as little attention drawn to that whole thing as possible. To them, yeah. So he, anyway, he puts out a call for a missing boy called William Parry, One thing that I think a few people were picking up on in forums and things was that he puts Will's age at 15, which is slightly different because he's meant to be the same age as Lyra, which is about 11, 12. Mm. And the whole, obviously there's a whole puberty thing, question of like, they're meant to be that age because their demons haven't, or Lyra's demon hasn't settled yet and all that kind of stuff. Putting him at a slightly older age means he's kind of smack bang in... In, in the middle of puberty. puberty. I mean, we may have some things to talk about in big spoilers oh, yeah, further big spoilers on that. Because gonna... you're drifting towards that being significant in worlds where people don't have demons, which is definitely a big spoiler. <laughs> uh, back to Lord Asriel's lab. Yeah. Pan and Salcilia play together. Oh, God, it's the cute. cuteness is just killing me. I, I love Pan and I and I especially love Salcilia. I don't know why, but just real cute. I think it's because she's often like the pine martin thing and I just love it. Very sweet. I was just saying last week that it would be nice to see more demon interaction in the show and here it is, so thank you, show. Yeah, <laughs> it's real nice to see them together because it shows that extra dimension of their relationship of Roger and Lyra being close and therefore their demons are sort yeah. of skittering about together and and i do think that finally here in episode eight we do actually start to really see the importance of demons and the way demons are with people and each other and Mm. and it's nice that it's here you know finally in episode eight in episode eight yeah (laughs) but i mean it does help underscore the impact of what's going to come later yeah and i will say better late than never yes so roger and lyra have made a blanket fort nice move yeah good everyone loves a blanket fort Fort, yeah (laughs) it's just sad that people don't build them as much as adults as you do as kids yeah can i just say as the camera tracks in and reveals the blanket fort the way the music resolves is kind of reminiscent of always a woman by billy joel did you think that no i didn't but now i'm gonna have to go back and listen to it yeah i kind of heard that and i was like it popped into my head, always a woman, and I was like, that's kind of appropriate to a bit the way Lyra is, particularly in the books and to some extent in the show. It's also kind of appropriate to Coulter. I don't know. Maybe I'm just overthinking the music, but I tend mm. to feel that composers never do anything by accident. So, mm. you know. Someone's just maybe a really big Billy Joel fan. Yeah, but it's thematically appropriate for at yeah. least two of the women in the in the series. <laughs> um, Roger 
suggests that perhaps Lyra should ask the alethiometer about how Lord Asriel feels because Lyra's kind of upset with what Lord Asriel... Yeah, and I think this is good advice from Roger. Yeah. Just check the alethiometer, Lyra. If I were you, I'd be checking it at least once a day. Just, just, is there anything I need to know? Oh, you'd get obsessed, though. Mm. You'd 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 lose it a little bit. It'd be, It'd be like the episode of Rick and Morty. I was literally about to say with that. The yeah. Death crystal. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think you'd become too focused on trying to follow it that you'd basically lose all connection with the world around you. Yeah, yeah she's upset because Lord Asriel basically kind of brushed her off. Yeah, but Roger thinks that actually maybe more the more to it than that. She says, "Well, maybe he actually does care." Mm. Um, Lyra's a bit kind of not sure about it. She seems a bit hesitant to ask it. Do you think she's afraid to know the truth about maybe Asriel doesn't care? I don't think I would ever want to know people's real thoughts. Like, I had a real big conversation with my friend about, you know, what superpowers we would have if if we had them and stuff. And hers was always like, reading minds, I'd love to know what people are thinking to, you know, because I find it difficult to read people sometimes. And I was like, I would never want to know what people really think because what people's thoughts are and what people's feelings are aren't necessarily the same thing. That's true. And if you can hear people's thoughts, oh boy. But I suppose, I mean, the, the theomicator could tell you the feelings part, but yeah. sometimes there's some things that are better off left unknown. I mean, the terrifying thing about people's thoughts is they aren't necessarily at all relevant to people's motivations, tastes, mm. or anything like that. What they actually will do yeah. or want or, yeah. So it's, it's quite terrifying how little our thoughts have to do with us. If I'm honest with you. Yeah. If you want to know more about that, dear listeners, then look up a classic long-standing psychology experiment called Telling More Than We Can Know and uh, brace yourselves. Frightening. <laughs> <laughs> Just traumatise the listeners, will yeah. you? And then you can go down the whole rabbit hole that followed that of whether or not we have free will and what free will really is. Mm. Mm. <laughs> um, Roger asks if it always tells the truth, if the lithiometer always tells the truth, and Lyra confirms that it does but also kind of suggests that it only tells her what it wants her to know, which then is like, well, but then is it the full truth? Because then it's kind of guiding you, isn't it? Mm. It's interesting that Fra Pavel earlier said something similar, that it kind of gives you the answer you need, not necessarily the one you want. Yeah. And it's a bit like, I suppose the fact is... It's a truth meter, and the truth is totally independent of human opinion or anything like that. Mm. So that kind of makes sense. Like, then, is it really guiding you, or is it? Is it almost like science in that you know what you want to happen and what you want to be real has fuck all to do with what's actually out there. Yeah. You just get lucky if it happens to. Yeah, but then it seems to be almost tailored to that individual person. So it's telling Fra Pavel what he needs to know, mm. but then it's telling Lyra what she needs to know. So has it got a motivation? Is it purely doing what's in the best interests of the person who is reading it? I mean, I guess it's a truth meter, but truth is particular to a person and their path, their destiny, if we're going with there being destiny at play here, which which we kind of have to because that yeah. kind of is. Um, so, you know, there would be no point in saying like, truth meter, truth meter, what's in my future? And it tells me what someone in France is having for breakfast. Like, great, thanks. That's a truth. But <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, obviously it answers specific questions. But I mean, if you said what is in my future... Oh boy, that's broad. I mean, it'd probably go wild. I don't think you'd be able to... Maybe <laughs> Lyra wouldn't be able to keep up with all of the stuff it revealed. But would there be one definitive thing? This is the question about the whole 
fate thing because or a destiny thing because potentially you only have one course in which you can go down in which case it could pin down pretty well, much exactly what's going to happen but by definition there's only one thing in everyone's futures and that's death right so mm. if you if you don't want the answer death the only other thing it can tell you is everything that's going to happen in your mm. future which oh, would take a while i'd love it if it just answered death yeah. like alethiometer takes death, a piss of it obviously what it cheers. rolls its eyes yeah. i knew that already like what just before death realizing you're gonna die great this conversation's over <laughs> sassy alethiometer yeah anyway um they fall asleep well, before that, Roger decides that actually maybe they shouldn't look at it after all because they sort of come to the conclusion that maybe for now it's all right to just know what they know. Yeah. Because everything's been so big. And I kind of understand that because a lot has happened to them, all these big, scary things. Maybe they just want to live in the moment yeah. for a short amount of time. But that is the worst time to decide that I know. for them. But they don't know that. And I of wonder if, if to some extent, you know, this has been essentially the end of the journey for Lyra in her mind. And maybe she really does just think this is quest over. There's maybe not any need to be talking to the Alethiomic mm. because we'll just be going home tomorrow. And so it goes. Yeah. And before they do go to sleep, they do have a little, a nice little conversation just to emphasise how bad everything is later on, where he says, um, we changed each other's lives. I like the fact that you changed my life. And she says, can't promise I won't stop changing it. And you're like... They have a bit of a drink and they fall asleep. Yeah, and they hug as well. They do. And I think, again, it shows what you were talking about, of the possibilities of what their relationship could develop into. They're obviously very close friends. They could have stayed close friends forever. They could have been more... Yeah, because I, mean, I think there's that idea of, like you say, to them, it's, it's sort of end of journey. So, you know, they would return to Oxford. Um, go back to their fun, normal lives. lives. Become teenagers. You know, there's that. I don't know. I, I wouldn't say there is any kind of romantic tension between them. But I think it's that seed that you get when you have like close friendships when you're um, a young person. Um, it's not just between kind of... Um, like young boys and girls because I know I definitely had lady feelings well I mean friends. that's no surprise <laughs> yeah but you have those kind of little seeds that begin in friendships that are you know that happen when you're young and then as you get older it sort of develops into something more mm. um, and I think it's that kind of seed of possibility yeah then they fall asleep mm-hmm. is that okay yes <laughs> okay. sorry <laughs> it's alright and Asriel comes a creeping at this point I'm like oh is he going to take Roger already but no he wakes up Lyra Yes. And he takes her off to the lab again. I don't know why they I think split this, is this his into good two advice. chats. Yeah, but why did they split it into two conversations? Because I think in the book, this is all one conversation, but for some reason they had this weird gap in the middle. and it's. I mean, I guess it's a pacing thing because they mm-hmm. wanted to show us a bit of what Boreal was up to and everybody else. And if yeah. you split things up, it makes those jumps more sequitur and make more sense. And I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing because the audience, particularly the audience that don't know the story already, are anticipating that Azriel is up to something. And like, could this be it? Could this be the revelation of what he's up to? So there's a bit of kind of tension, yeah. anticipation. I think well, it works televisually. All I'm thinking is that like, if someone woke me up in the middle of the night like that and wanted to have a chat, I'd be like, 
are you kidding me? <laughs> like, you better have made me a cup of tea and got me some biscuits if you're waking me up in the middle of the night. Yeah, but he hasn't. For a chat. But, I mean, they do get to have a look at the aurora. Oh, yeah, I suppose I'd wake up yeah. for that. Yeah, exactly. Although, at this point, she's seen it so many times, it's probably less important to wake her up for it. Bitch. Yeah. Uh, still salty about not yeah. seeing it. <laughs> Troubled all that goddamn way. <laughs> Fuck the authority. <laughs> um... So they're discussing dust, and Azriel says that the Magisterium fears it, because they believe it's actually the kind of material embodiment of sin. It is sin and evil raining down. Mm -hmm. And they didn't really pay any attention to it until they noticed that it only settled on people during puberty, and then they kind of made this logical leap to Adam and Eve, as you would, I'm sure. I'd, I'd go from puberty to Adam and Eve in a snap. (laughs) And they labelled it original sin. Yeah, original sin. Uh, Lyra's kind of a bit unsure what this means. So is the audience, I assume. So we get a little bit of a, a bit of an explanation there. Yeah, Bible recital, a Bible from their universe, which mm-hmm. is kind of cool because it's a little different. Yeah, because I mean, big difference. They have demons, demons. in it, which is kind of cool. Um, Lord Azrael asks about when Eve's demon settled, and I was like, "Well, obviously, it was when she ate the fruit." Yeah. And Lord Azrael recites a passage that has a kind of relevance, which I'm going to read. I was just going to say, I sense a quote. Go for it. Okay. <clears throat> you shall not surely die, for the authority doth know that on the day that he eat thereof, I shall be opened. Your demons shall assume their true form, and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. There we go. But as Lyra's is evil, he says, dust. dust. Do you see now, Lyra? Yeah. <sighs> you shall know good and dust. Yeah, no, that's totally clear, Azriel. Thanks. But it does also reveal definitively that the authority is God, I yeah. think. Yeah, I think that's what that's there for. So I think it's also interesting that in the very first episode, it's one of the pieces of the Bible that Lyra was learning about from one of the scholars. It's a bit that, that, that he didn't really want to reread. Well, to he, she gets it wrong because he, she says, you should be as God knowing good and evil. And what it should be is as God. And it does mm. change the meaning somewhat because... It does a bit. Which is quite fascinating. I got excited at this bit because I was like, yeah, if you if you read it as, and you shall be as God, it basically, it kind of uh, reinforces what the serpent says, which is basically, if you do this, you shall, you'll be equal with God. You'll yeah. be like him. Yeah. Whereas God's kind of implied, God puts more of an emphasis on the capital G-O-D, so you will be like him. Mm-hmm. Whereas God's plural implies a kind of... I feel like it almost takes the power out of it. Mm. Like, almost like saying you'll be like heroes or you will be powerful or you will be, I don't know, like a pantheon of God, but you won't be, you know, the, the OG. God. Yeah. That's how I read it anyway. Yeah. And I suppose that makes sense in the kind of the monotheistic tradition that only one God matters. Mm. So you'll be like gods, but not God. Yeah. yeah. Because it's not even said you should be like Gods, it's, it's, you should be as God. Mm, gods, you know yourself. <laughs> so you should be as as gods. Yeah. yeah. But what I mean is, is that if she said it that way, that's what it would say. Yeah. So yeah, so that's kind of a a powerful little um, passage there that made me all excited. Oh, yeah. I'm giddy with your literary background. <laughs> <laughs> it's not really literary. It just I don't know. I guess it made me excited because But they're they're reading a book. How can that not be literary? Yeah. <laughs> I am very <Good> naive. <laughs> 
Um, it made me excited because it starts opening up some of the wider stuff that comes up in this yeah. and about what it means to have knowledge and... And, and power. Yes, and what God is, I yeah. suppose, mm-hmm. as well. But Asriel then sort of says, the magisterium use all this to like convince people that they have to atone for Eve's sin, but there's never any proof that the sin even occurred, but thus real. Mm-hmm. It's scientifically measurable, essentially. So they've got their kind of material solution to the question of whether sin is real or not, and yeah. whether you really need to follow them to atone. Yeah, it's given them a tool of control because it yeah. can be measured and studied. And Lyra suddenly realises, again, this is one of my favourite books, Lyra realises the, the reason behind what Mrs Coulter was doing at Bolvanger. And she says this really clearly in a way that the books do not. No one has this revelatory moment. I think you're just meant to come to it yourself. But she says she they are preserving their sinless souls. Yeah. Which I think paints Mrs Coulter in a lot more of a um, sympathetic light. Yeah, but also a religious zealot. I'd just like to point out. Yeah, I guess I, d- I hadn't kind of thought about that so much because to me, the way she says it, Lyra says it, is with a sort of softness as if she realises that in Mrs Coulter's eyes she might have been trying to do something good. Yeah, and I think from a child's perspective you might accept it on face value of what she thinks what she's doing is right, so that makes her actually not a bad person. But ISIS think what they're doing is right. I'm aware that that is how kind of religious celebrity kind of works. Yeah, but it is. I thought it was an interesting moment anyway. Um, and I think it does kind of give that extra layer of depth to Mrs Coulter's um, character because I want to know why that in particular is a of interest to her and it goes back to her damaged kind of psyche and yeah. did something happen to her that makes her wish that her own soul was sinless? I think we very much suspect it did, mm. let's say. <laughs> but I, I think that something we've wanted is to know her motivations through the TV series. And I don't necessarily think that now I've got that. I did want it. I quite like being confused by Coulter, although she does remain relatively confusing for the rest of the episode. So that's yeah. OK. You can like, always predict unpredictability. Yeah, I quite enjoyed the fact that she's this sort of agent of chaos that you just mm. can't quite predict where she's coming from or what she's yeah. going to do. And I think Asriel starts to see her as that as time wears on in this episode as well. Yeah, but Lyra doesn't completely sort of forgive her. She does then go on to talk with Asriel a little bit about the intersized children and how awful it was to see them. How empty they looked, etc. Yeah, exactly. And Lord Asriel actually asks Lyra if they tried to cut her and then she explains about what happened with Mrs Coulter, that Mrs Coulter actually stopped them from doing that. Mm. And Lord He's that, surprised. Yeah, he's a little bit like, ah, oh, did she? Interesting. Maybe she's not as evil as I thought she was. Or maybe he's like, it's interesting that you'll let it be done to other children, but not to your own. Yeah. Depends where he's coming at it from. I'm not sure. Well, let's be honest. She's probably coming at it from almost the exact same angle he is. (laughs) Put a pin in that. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And I think that maybe he realises that they have something in common talking about it this way. Perhaps that's what's going on. Mm. That they still do have something in common, as they must have once. Yeah. They also then discuss the importance of the demon-human bond. Yeah. And the beauty of it. And uh, 
Azrael also mentions the massive release of energy that occurs when it's severed, which kind of comes out of the left field a bit, but, you know. A bit cash. I can't remember, again, when I first read the books, I can't remember why alarm bells went ringing then or whether I didn't quite put it together. But I do think it's good because just starts putting it in and you start building it up and you're like oh. yeah we're getting back towards knowing what's coming mm-hmm. and Lyra after this long conversation just sort of settles down to sleep in the lab mm. I wonder if that was Azriel's intent all along if he hadn't really come to say goodbye or am I tiring him too much with the culter brush of assuming that everything he does is some form of misdirection or manipulation yeah I mean it's not a bad shout I suppose um, can I just go back a little bit is that alright yeah um, Lord Azrael states that what he wants to do, so his main goal of going through the portal, is to find the source of dust. Mm. So he wants to find the source of that, and he also reveals that it's dust that makes the lithiometer work. Yeah. He also tells her that the lithiometer is hers. So they kind of go back to the conversation they had, but makes it a little bit kinder. The lithiometer is hers. He is glad that she came, mm-hmm. and that she didn't come from nothing. He says, you came from something extraordinary. And that's the point at which he tells her to sleep in the chair. Yeah. And was her sleeping in the lab his plan all along? Yeah. Or am I just judging him too it much would like make, Coulter? It would make things easier, both from a storytelling point of view and from his point of view, I guess. I guess it would, yeah. Yeah. But we cut back to the airship and Coulter's looking out over the frozen wastes as they fly along. Then Lyra falling asleep. Then Boreal in Will's Oxford. I know, there is a, like, cut, cut, cut. Bit of... Bit of Visual juxtapositioning. Yes. The yeah. the two female pro slash antagonists. Yeah. Um. We're in Will's world. I'm gonna yeah. miss saying that because it makes me giggle because I just think of Wayne's world every time I say it. <laughs> Will's world party time. Excellent. Yeah. Maybe. <laughs> uh. So he's just kind of finished a conversation on the radio and then he's talking to his little snack demon which is sat on the car seat next to him and Mm. more or less just says, well, maybe the legend of the Angel's Tower is true and if it's true, the boy's going to lead me there. And then we see Will riding around a bus in Oxford with his hoodie on. (laughs) Clear on a hoodie and go undercover, Will. I just really like the whole bit where Boreal was talking to his demon because I kind of didn't figure it out quite at first because it seems like he's sort of talking to himself and then he looks and the demon's just sat there like, yeah, just having a little peep at him. She doesn't say much. No. She doesn't have a voice, I don't think. But she's Evil just like... characters don't seem to talk to their demons at all in the TV show, in the sense of the demon talking back, I mean. Mm. I wonder whether it because it reveals too much about a person's character and part of the things that makes bad characters interesting and whatnot is the Not fact knowing. that... Yeah, is yeah. that we don't know their intentions, whereas... The thing, yeah. Yeah, um, because even though, I mean, Stelmaria does speak, but she doesn't say a lot. Because no. if she said too much, she would, like, give away everything that was going on with Asriel. They managed to make her say just enough. Yeah. And Asriel's not too much of a baddie. And we're not really necessarily meant to whoa, whoa, see. Whoa. <laughs> well, I, okay, yeah. But he's not like Boreal. He's not just like, every time you see me, I'm being evil. It's just kind of like, <laughs> did you like I my song? <laughs> Boreal sings that to him. So. Yeah, but I, I think as well it differentiates then. Like, we don't necessarily pin Asriel down to being someone doing bad things because mm. he has at least that one difference in characterization from the villains. Mm. We jump back to the north, speaking of Asriel, and the airships are approaching the lab. Yeah. Lyra is having a nightmare mm-hmm. and Thorold wakes her up to reveal that the Magisterium's on their way. Asriel and Roger have gone. <laughs> and 
He's going to be looking after her now. Yeah. She suddenly has a realisation about the energy kind of demon situation. Yeah, and the fact that Azriel's buggered off with Roger in secret. Yeah, and so Lyra calls on Yorick yeah, Bernison. She legs it out into the snow and yeah. yells for him, and here he comes. Yeah. Right on cue, just after he was needed, he's back, just like when the Egyptian camp got raided. <laughs> <laughs> See, it makes a bit more sense in the books because he was always outside, like, yeah. napping in the snow. Well, I mean, he went off to kind of see the other bears in this, didn't he, and stuff. But that's the thing. You, you've got to get rid of your big armoured bear if you want evil to be afoot. Otherwise, yeah. he's going to stop it. Yeah. But now the evil's been afoot. Yeah. I enjoyed. Back. I enjoyed seeing the other bears. I think we both said this, that it was quite nice to see them, like, working together. Yeah. They all go running off into the snow without Lyra. Yeah. Heading towards Azriel. Uh, we go to Lord Asriel leading Roger kind of up the mountain and Roger's like, where are we going? You know, but is, is Lyra coming? And he's like, yeah, yeah, it's cool. Like Thorwood's bringing her. It's going to be fine. Him, don't worry. Roger clearly <laughs> not happy with this situation. Yeah, back to Mr. Naivety is Roger. Oh, bless him. <laughs> Poor kid. And yeah. then we go back to the lab and the magisterium are busting the door in. Mm-hmm. Bursting with her LMP 40s, McPhail and Coulter are there. And Coulter sort of says, like, there could be traps, don't touch anything, get all the troops out of here. And then proceeds to touch everything. Yeah, well, I'm like, is she just trying to make sure she sees everything first and she can tell what's important yeah, and I, all the rest of it? I think it might be a little bit of both. I think Azrael seems like the kind of person that would be into a bit of a booby trap. Pretend. But also... You know, she then does go around touching things, so I guess... Yeah, I, I, I think that perhaps, as is often the case with Coulter, there are ulterior motives to what she's saying and doing, and I think she wants to check first and see if she can get hold of anything that will give her a bit more leverage and a bit more yeah. power before anyone else sees it. Yeah, very wise. Uh, she also notes his telescope is trained on a particular mountain peak, so she's got an idea of where he might be heading. Thorold <laughs> knocks out Father MacPhail. I think we're all happy about that situation. Yeah. Um, Get rid of that shit. Yeah. <laughs> and um, But Mrs. Coulter manages to talk him down. Yeah. Well, she he points his shotgun at her and she mm. says, I know you. You're not going to shoot me. I'm not even armed. She is. But he can't oh, see I'd that. forgotten about that. <laughs> yeah. She's full on just lying. Yeah. Um, she asks a lot of Azriel questions. I mean, at this point, this is monologue. Like, mm. n- at no point does Thorold say a word. It's just all just... Like a... It's the Marissa Coulter show right now. Yeah. So she wants to know about Azriel's equations. She immediately realises that there's something to do with energy release and dust. Uh, she wants to know who's with Azriel. Is she worried that it might be Lyra? I think that was the implication. She realises that they've gone the mountain. I mean, her lip acting right now, which I think... She's a very... She's it's all in the actor. mouth. It's, it's all in the like the upper part of her mouth. It's, it's just going wild right now. And But the weird thing is, is that she's actually quite of nice to Thorold because she sort of says, you don't need to do anything anymore because, you know, he's basically horrible to everyone, you included. Yeah. Like, just go. I yeah. don't... Yeah, you can I'll just leave. I'll tell everyone McPhail's staying here for a bit. I'll go after Azrael. You can just bugger off. Because yeah. Azrael's a shit to all of us. Yeah. What did you make of that? I mean, I wonder if she knows she's not going to get any information out of him right now, but he might be useful to her in the future. Maybe. But then why wouldn't you capture him? Because if she captures him now, she's got to take him with the Magisterium. And I wonder if a lot of where she's at with even coming up to the north is more about having leverage to keep her position mm. rather than about her end game. I mean, yeah. I think it's both. But I guess she knows like everything I've got that the Magisterium doesn't have. 
stops the magisterium from stopping me effectively because you know mm. she used Asriel and the bears and everything as leverage before but she's lost both of those things she wants new leverage because yeah. her position is tenuous she's on thin ice clever girl yeah um we see will then we're back in will's world will in a cafe <laughs> checking the news they must have been really relieved because it's you know it's like a bbc production they can just use the bbc news like they app, can. which it's is handy great. And yeah. they get to advertise it. Yeah. But then a police officer walks in and Will slinks out. So he's police dodging. Yeah. And it doesn't seem like the police are that interested in him at this point. She oh. wonders why he runs out and stuff, but she doesn't seem to go after him. At least yeah. not visibly. Lord Asriel and Roger arrive at the summit. Uh, Lord Asriel starts setting up his equipment. And Lord Asriel has told Roger that it's a surprise for Lyra. Like, yeah, yeah it is a surprise. It is going to be a surprise, but not a good one. Yeah. Wait till Royal she boy. sees what we're doing up here, Roger. The look on her face. <laughs> uh, Lyra is running out into the snow with the bears still, and they've spotted the airships, which appear to be heading towards the mountain mm-hmm. where Azriel is heading. And Yorick commands the bears to prepare. And on board the airship, an officer's telling Coulter that they've seen bears preparing for an artillery attack. I'm just saying I'm sad that we never actually see their fire launchers, their fire throwers. We don't, the fire hurlers. Oh. No, that's it, fire hurlers. Because they do use them, but we don't actually get to see them. In the book, it's one of the fire hurlers or multiple fire hurlers that bring down the Zeppelin. Because mm. um, I think there's only one Zeppelin in the um, in the book. But that's quite a dramatic moment. You kind of see that happening, but sort of a bit off to the side, to the back, because Lyra's running away. But yeah, yeah. so uh, Mrs. Coulter orders the, the men to fire. Yeah. And... I, I've not got a proper weapon watch on what guns they're using. Yeah. I will just speculate that it's an MG-131, which was the favourite Nazi weapon to mount on aircraft. Just going to guess. Just going to guess, cause I'm, and I've lost in pretty much all my science watches. I've mm. barely had any science watches in the TV series compared mm. to the book, so I've gone to weapon watch instead. instead. You've got to have your speciality. Yeah. Um, Lyra hides behind rocks as, like, the as this all goes down. The, it's just a big old fire happens at this point. There's lots of cool shots of, like, the men coming out of the plane with their hawk or demons yeah. parachuting down. And that's so cool. They're like paratroopers and they've got bird demons. I like that mm. a lot. And they're yeah. shooting down at the bears. All hell's breaking loose. The yeah. bears are scrambling to attack. One gets shot and I think mm. killed. Mm. Um, we don't see the fire throwers, as I said, but they are using them. And essentially we hear all this explosion and chaos going off and Lyra drops to the floor with the old sort of cinematic Saving Private Ryan trope of her ears essentially being overwhelmed and everything goes really quiet. Mm -hmm. And uh, Yorick runs to her side and says, I'll take you to Azrael. And as they run into the snow, you see the fire hurler like hit the airship and that starts coming Mm -hmm. down. We get another Lyra rides Yorick scene, um, mm-hmm. this time with the sort of battle around them and the airship on fire. Very dramatic. It is. It still doesn't look amazing. <laughs> it looks good. I mean, they look okay, those scenes. But the big thing is Lyra's always lit wrong for the environment they're supposed to be in. The light's mm. always kind of the wrong tone and stuff and sometimes even the wrong angle. And it's like, just, you know, just ruins it a tiny bit. But it still yeah. looks okay. So whilst Yorick is taking kind of Lyra towards the thing, Roger can actually see the fight happening below and he's worried about what's happening to Lyra. But but as that happens, as he's having a look, Lord Asriel grabs him and Del Mario grabs Salcilia 
and they get put in the cages that he's yeah. just revealed. And it turns out that what he was preparing was his own intercision machine. Mm-hmm. We jump back to Yorick and Lyra. They've reached a narrow ice bridge. Mm. It's obvious that Yorick's not going to be able to do that. No, absolutely not. <laughs> he can't cross, so she's got to go alone. And they have like, they have quite a touching goodbye. Yeah, I liked do. this. She yeah. gives him a kiss on the nose and, and she... they address each other by full name and title. Goodbye. Lyra Silverton. But you can King say it better than I can, can't you? Goodbye, Lyra Silverton. But she he says it in a certain accent that I just love in a certain way. Oh. Yeah, Eric. got a bit of an affected Scandi accent going yeah, on there. Yeah, I love it. So yeah, they say goodbye and um, Pan kind of encourages Lyra across the bridge because yeah. it's scary as hell. I said I would have like bum shuffled across it because there was no way on earth... Like a little I, doggy with an itchy butt. Yeah, because <laughs> there's no way I'd stand on that because like one false like slip of your foot and you are off that edge. Yeah. So I would have just like sat down and scooted across. It just wouldn't have looked cinematic. It wouldn't. Although the thought of you bum scooting across an ice bridge is somehow kind of cute. <laughs> <laughs> but she's sort of obviously nervous and Pan's that emotional drive at this point. He, mm. He's sort of the ex external visualisation of that saying like you can do it keep going and she gets to the other side yeah um, Roger is calling out for Lyra at this point he's like obviously distressed I've got to say the kid who plays Roger I mean I've said before this acting is good but in this episode yeah. for such a young kid I think he really knocked he does it all out right, of the park. He? yeah he does alright yeah. Asriel's sort of saying I'm sorry this is happening to you but in war there are casualties Oof. I think his language is he's trying to distance himself from the act he's about to commit mm. he's almost trying to like absolve himself of culpability before he's even Absolutely. done it which we don't really get to see in the book it's just kind of it it just sort of happens and, and Asriel doesn't have a lot to say mm. about it but in this there is clearly a sort of there is some kind of feeling about it yeah. of some kind um, being told you're just a casualty of war not helpful not helpful as you're about in the to be slightest and, mm-hmm. I mean the thing is now he definitely knows this is going to be bad as well he's just been told he's a casualty before he even is one so yeah. you know well, what's coming I think we can assume that although we know that people can survive um, indecision that's with the big old fancy indecision machine that helped Bolvanger this is a janky ass looking DIY yeah, this, is, this looks like it's made out of shopping trolleys and bits of shed roof yeah <laughs> like it's not it's not good but we cut back to Lyra and Pan and making their final ascent. Yes, and Pan flies up as a bird and reports back what is happening, um, and says that you know they're in the same cages. You that know, they had at Bolvanger that galvanises Lyra, and yeah. she's like, oh, she's determined to climb mm. back at the top. Salcilia's having a panic. Poor old Salcilia. <laughs> oh God, it breaks my heart. And Azriel starts to manually lower the incision blade, yeah. like with some effort. He's sort of watching. Roger and Salcilia yeah. fretting and panicking as well, but he keeps going. Yeah, Salcilia's like, I don't want to leave you. Oh, and, God. And, and Lyra arrives at the sort of far side of the cage just in time to look into Roger's eyes as the blade closes. Yeah. And Salcilia just sort of dissolves as, as she goes out of shot behind the blade. Yeah. And that's it, indecision complete. Bwong, massive burst of energy into the sky. That was a good impression of the sound. I'd written Vroom, spelt V-W-O-O-M. Yeah, well, I went with Bwong, spelt Bwong. Yeah, cool. <laughs> um, there is that sound and a flash of light. Lyra falls backwards and then we see this this 
beam of light going yeah. up into the aurora. Bright white light. This does look kind of cool. Lightning at the top. It does look pretty cool. It's pretty beautiful. Um, and the, the portal, as I said at the beginning about how the, the stringy effect they've used for the multiverse, um, mm. it's actually the effect they use for the portal in the close-up shots. You can see it's sort of actually comprised of these glowy orangey-white strings. Oh, that nice. are, yeah. Yeah, and that's the same thing that the multiverse becomes in the title sequence. So that's cool. That's kind of kind of nice. Yeah. yeah. Lord Azrael gazes up at this um, beam of light. Uh, so do the soldiers and the bears, and then it all kind of folds in on itself to reveal the kind of the actual doorway itself. Like you yeah. say, that's all made up of these strands of light. It just sort of looks like a tent door that's been left open. Yeah, and as you see, <laughs> tent door to another world. world. As you see, like Lord Azrael looking into it, and the light on his face. Mrs. Coulter appears. Gun still hidden on hip. Yeah. Uh, yeah, just as he's about to step in, actually, she pops up and stops him. But Asriel, he's he's got his gun on show and points it at her. Yeah. I think that's another Lee Anfield, but I'm not certain. Weapon watch. <laughs> he seems surprisingly pleased to see her. Yeah, he does. Uh, which is a bit odd. Yeah. She kind of tries to tell him it's like over, which is he's like, well, yeah. I mean, I made the portal already, yeah. so... It's kind of like the Magisterium won't allow this. It's like, it's like, bitch, it. the Magisterium's done. Look at this shit. Yeah. I've just opened a portal to another world. When people find out about this, no one's going to give a damn about what the Magisterium says. Mm. But Mrs. Coulter is a little bit... She starts to get a little bit intrigued, I think, at yeah. this point. Um, Lord Azrael goes on to say that his war isn't just with the Magisterium. Yeah. So this is where we get this idea about his whole the source of dust thing and where that's going so yeah. his war clearly is going beyond bigger it's in other yes. worlds and he's uh, he's sort of saying that you know without the magisterium there'd be no more oppression no more mm. suppression of knowledge no more darkness do you see that light that's the light of the sun in another world mm. one of the interesting things i thought he says in that little speech as well is no more abuse yeah and i think that's interesting because he's just done abuse <laughs> Uh, yeah, he's just done that, and they, they well, Mrs. Coulter has as well. Mm. Um, but also that that is the only times we hear people outrightly say that what is happening, that what the church does is abuse. Yeah. And I think it's quite brave for a TV show to actually even hint at that, yeah. like to say that, that mm. the church, the link with abuse there and yeah. things like that. And I mean, his whole speech about oppression, suppression, yeah. etc., it's, it's bold, and I like it. It gets yeah. my seal of approval. I think it carries the overall tone of the series well. It mm -hmm. summarises it well, really, what mm -hmm. it's really about. Surprisingly, Lord Asru actually asks Mrs. Corter to go with him. Yeah. Um, in order to fight the authority. Mm. So, I mean, that's that's God. Yeah, he's off to fight God. He kind of says they can tear everything apart, basically. They can build a new universe. A republic of heaven. Yeah. And a new Republic of Heaven. A new Republic of Heaven, that's it. So we've got a lot of questions going on because Asriel's clearly got some even more ideas than we thought he had going on. They have a kiss, which I think is quite surprising. In the book, I was surprised. Yeah. I, th I think maybe what we've seen here is Asriel at least realising and probably called to that they're not that different. They've kind of been doing the same thing 
for almost the same reasons. Yeah, but just kind of coming at it from slightly different, slightly different ways. Yeah. You also see a little bit of the interaction between their demons. So you see like the monkeys like holding on to Stelmaria mm. and having a bit of a cuddle. This bit always made me feel a bit creeped out in the books because like it is a bit weird when they're like romantic, but the demons are just like, hmm. Yeah. Um, Mrs. Court though, she's not entirely convinced. She didn't say anything at this point yet, straight after the kiss. She just looks very confused. Lord Asriel tells her not to lie about anything anymore, including about like who she is. He's mm. like, you can lie about anything, but don't lie about this. Don't lie about who you are yeah. and what you want. But she says that she wants to stay in the world where Lyra is. Mm-hmm. And, and Asriel seems dead surprised. Like, mm. that's what you want? Yeah, I'm staying here. Peace out, Asriel. I am also very surprised by this as a reason. Are we seeing a softening of court or a realisation that she should be a mother to Lyra? It seems an odd one to have come all that way to make that decision. Because she's going to let him go. Yeah. So she's not even going to stop him. But then, and then just kind of is like, nah, I'm out because of Lyra. It's like, well, you could have made that decision a bit earlier. It's an interesting one, though, because essentially she was part of all these experiments in Bolvanger and they never got close to what they were trying to do, which was just separate kids and demons without it, essentially blanking the person or whatever. Mm. And here's Azrael. He's only done one indecision that we know of and he's already ready to travel the universe he's and attack God. He's only gone and done one indecision. Like, it's kind of like... Big moment, I guess. She mm. she realises that he's achieved an awful lot and that he might be closer to solving the whole conundrum than her. I don't know. Like He's obviously doing it from a different perspective and for different reasons, but he's a lot further down the path of what his goal is than she. Yeah. I just felt like that bit was quite out of character, even more so than the fact that they have a bit of a snog. <laughs> yeah, I get, I get what you mean. But then also... Is she thinking, well, I'll stay here while I've got power, where you're not in charge? Because if she goes with him, she's kind of at his mercy. I mean, he's the one that can yeah. open the portals. He's the I, one with the plan. I mean, I feel like as a couple, they would not be stable. No. I they'd bet be the like, sex would be brilliant. I was like, about to say that. I bet they'd be hella passionate, but they'd be at each other's throats, and they'd be like, just a nightmare. But maybe they wouldn't, because Coulter seems like a bit of a cold fish. Just going to say it. And if the sex was that great, why didn't they stay together? I suppose you can't stay together only for sex, can you? But No, and also the whole social scandal business. Because she was yeah. still with her husband at the time. True, true. Mrs. Coulter walks away. She does. And Asriel walks into the portal. And off he goes, jump over to Will's Oxford. And Will's wandering the streets outside this calf that he's legged it from. Which turns out is pretty close to where Boreal's portal is, we know as the viewers. Yeah, so it's the park near there. He sees some policemen mm-hmm. and women walking down the street and... Does a little dodge into the bushes, bushes of the park. Yeah, a lot of this episode for Will is basically him walking around yeah. Oxford. Will walks, Will hides on a bus, Will hides in a bush. <laughs> it's, it's almost it's almost a Dr Seuss book for the 21st century. Yeah. <laughs> um, Back in the north, Lyra's awoken in the snow. She's hurt the same rib that she hurt falling out of the balloon. I feel worried about that rib. Maybe the rib was already hurt and she's kind of just feeling it again, re-injured or something. I feel like she should see something about that rib. But but Coulter's still at the mountain and she's sort of seen Roger in the cage and Lyra hides behind the sort of the pile of rocks and snow that Roger's cage is on just waiting for Coulter to F off, basically. I guess she's not seen any of that exchange between them. No, whereas in the book, she witnesses the whole shebang and hears everything that goes on between them and sees them kissing, which is, I mean, who wants to see their parents 
like making out no especially not when they're both evil yeah jump back to wills oxford and he's still in the bushes hiding from the police this is a real nice juxtaposition can i just say like this now shows us that will and lyra are basically the same yeah all Will's I've... dad went off through a portal to another world so did Lyra's mm. dad Will's mum not the most mentally healthy of women Lyra's mum equally so but in a very different way I was going to say Elaine arguably a nicer person yeah much nicer <laughs> but still um, it's all yeah. going on and it's all pretty similar for them they're both hunted they're both hiding yeah although he does essentially sit during this thing I'd put in my notes Will sits yeah Will and that's sits it. yeah back in the north Lyra and Pan have gotten Roger out of the cage and they're sort of saying their goodbyes to his body. Yeah. She does say that, oh, he's still warm. His face is still warm. And I thought for a second they were going to go down the route Mm. that Roger was still alive, but I'm pretty sure that's not the case. Pan points out that Salcilia's gone and Lyra grieves and they both say their goodbyes. She essentially vows to go and find the cause of all this. And yeah, well, she she's upset about making the mistake about Asriel, about mm. about trusting him, and she blames herself. Obviously, we know that, you know, it's not her fault that those things happened. Yeah. But from where she's coming from, all this time she thought that she was on the mission to give the alethiometer to Lord Asriel, and what she actually did was took... Deliver Roger. Just right yeah. to him, yeah. Totally unintentionally. But she wants to make sure that they don't win. Mm-hmm. And they'll go into the sky and search for dust. They also kind of point out that, or rather, it's Pan's initial idea that they need to find dust because they only think it's bad because the adults have told them so. What they've learned so far is that adults are full of shit. Yeah, the adults aren't always <laughs> right. right. Yeah. And that perhaps dust might need protecting. And that is also one of the things that helps Lyra give Lyra that resolve yeah. to, to look into it and to, to follow the path, as mm. it were. And they vow that Roger's death won't be in vain. Yeah. Oh, like Pan being all like, you know, I, I can't Noble. do the impression. Yeah. <laughs> do the impression. Yeah, I can't do it in, in like a, a, in word form. And Sarah was just sort of puffing her chest out a bit. Yeah. <laughs> For those of you that are wondering what's going on here. <laughs> yeah. Back in Will's Oxford, Will sees a cat. Yeah. End of that scene. <laughs> <laughs> it does kind of feel a bit like that, though. Like, if you actually just put, like, Will's scenes all together and show them in one go, it would be, like, the most boring. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, Will sees cat. Will watches a cat through a fence. Yeah. End of scene. <laughs> we already know he likes cats, though, so at least it makes sense when he tries to follow it. Yeah. The, the, the weirdest looking cat, like, it looks like it might just be a bit... It looks like... Travelling between worlds hasn't done that cat any favours. No. Are we to assume that's what it's doing? That's what it's doing in the book. Yeah. Probably fairly ob- oblivious to what it's doing itself. Mm. But he sort of follows it through the gap in the fence and back in the north, Pan's holding Lyra to her chest and she's tentatively approaching Azriel's portal. Yeah. Uh, Will slips through the fence. He goes to see where it went, yeah. Yeah, Lyra's hesitating at the Steps edge of her portal. portal. Oh, it's all mm. building in pace. Will actually crosses through the the gap in the fence he sees the portal and he puts a hand in yeah nothing bad happens no he's tested it out we we can also see it definitely doesn't connect to Lyra's portal because we can kind of see the world on the other side of it um and it looks very different to Lyra's one which I'm assuming is just because they were opened in different ways yeah I don't really know where Will's portal came from no 
I kind of assumed that maybe John Parry made it, but I think that's wrong. I um, can't remember, so... No. <laughs> <laughs> we'll remember soon, I'm sure, when we do the sort of knife. Yeah. But he's not that phased by it, which leads me to believe that maybe John, his dad, had mentioned something about the multiverse in his letters, because Will's got the letters now. Yeah, that's that was my thought, that maybe he had read those letters, because... Because he's looking at would... it more like, holy shit, this is one of those things, rather than, oh my god, what have I just discovered? Yeah, you'd be a bit more shocked normally, I think. Um, And then back in Lyra's world, she steps through the portal and leaves. Yeah. Will hears sirens and he steps through his portal. Yeah. And Lyra's kind of walking through the light of her portal. Uh, And outside, as the camera tracks up, we see the city and the northern lights become invisible. Yeah. End of season. Bum, bum, bum. Bum, 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 bum. What did you make of all that then as a finale? I did quite like it. Yeah, yeah, same, same. I was I was hoping that I wouldn't feel like underwhelmed and, and I wasn't yeah. disappointed. Yeah. All I think the, it was certainly stronger than the last episode. Yeah, all the beats that I wanted hitting were there. Yeah. There was a few changes but nothing enough to make me really mad maybe just that bit with mrs coulter and why she chooses to stay i think that's a little bit out of character but she kind of needs to stay yeah i'm I'm trusting them a little bit more with changes now because the ones they have made writing wise seem to have worked out okay in the end seem to have made sense to the wider story that they're telling so i'm kind of a little bit more now like okay that's a bit different but i'm sure there's a good reason for that and i'm sure it will come around yeah, it's tied together quite nicely. Yeah. I think there have been some weak episodes. If I'm mm-hmm. honest, there's probably been more mediocre episodes than there have really good ones, but I'm glad it finished well. Mm-hmm. I do think it works better when they're trying to tell less complicated stories side by side, which makes sense. They've only got an hour. Maybe they were yeah. a bit ambitious to try and do it in eight episodes, because I do think that when it's at its best, it's when it's like this, where mm-hmm. we've got a main focus and a main story that we're spending time with and we get mm-hmm. to see more character interact and you see real hints of great screenwriting in those moments and episodes. Yeah. Um, and, and throughout in Will's parts where they're telling a slightly simpler plot. Yeah, um, I mean, I think we've said multiple times now, but the bits in Will's world are actually done really nicely, yeah. I think, because... I think that kind of flipped this time and the bits in Will's world were more there to juxtapose and pace the episode, but there yeah. wasn't much story developing there. No, there wasn't. But in, in Lyra's world where we had this kind of simple build-up, mm. for the most part, was really excellent. Yeah. It'll be interesting to sort of go go over and watch the series again and see which were the highlights and which were the low points and um, what those kind of reasons were. Because I think having watched them week by week, you kind of lose sight of that a bit. But when you watch them all in one go, maybe identify a little bit more what, what worked and what didn't. Yeah. And, w- and with that binge watch... Maybe maybe it's almost written for that because a lot of series kind of are written a bit to be binged these days because mm. they know people get them on demand. The pacing and everything might fit together as a whole. You might find clusters of episodes work really well together mm. when you watch them back to back and you don't have that gap between. So that could be an interesting thing to do. I don't think I'll be doing it immediately. Yeah. I think I'll, I'll have a little rest for Christmas first. But yeah. I'd certainly like to try and binge watch it and see how it works laid out like that. Yeah, I feel like at the moment I've got into a like a, a ball pit of, of HDM stuff yeah. and I am just fully in it. We've got the book and the TV show and... 
I've actually You're given in, given in and read um, La Belle Sauvage and um, I've just started Secret Commonwealth. So I'm like, all I can think about is, is demons and everything. And I'm like, maybe, maybe I just need a little bit of a time out because yeah. otherwise it just, you can't get that same kind of perspective on it all. You if you're too fully... Finish reading some of your dad's sci-fi books, maybe yes. give yourself a break from Pullman's universe, as wonderful and compelling as it is. Yeah. Um, so, big spoilers... Big spoilers. Um, I mean, let's call the big spoilers now. I don't know how much we've got to say, but I want to make a couple of points. So for those of you leaving us, as always, thank you very much for listening. Please join us on our social media platforms over there in the show notes. And I'd like to uh, give a shout out to Consecrete, our latest patron over on Patreon. (laughs) Uh, Also check the show notes for a list of our avid supporters that I did promise to thank and I will. So thank you to all of them. There's a lot. (laughs) Cheers. I feel like we should do a bigger finale because, I mean, this is like... Well, we'll have the book finale to come, yeah. We've got our one last episode of the book podcast. Yeah. Okay. Right. So... Chris speaks. If you want a proper goodbye from us, you'll have to listen to the last book episode. And in fact, if you haven't already, you can now start reading Northern Lights slash Golden Compass because the TV series is finished. And guess what? Our podcast, if I do say so myself, is a worthy companion to it, (laughs) (laughs) I think. Um, Yeah, now we're going to enter big spoiler territory. I mean, we now know that they're not shying away from real hard criticism of the church. They're definitely going to war with God. So, I mean, I never thought I'd be that glad to see a child murder. (laughs) Yeah. But we um, know that they're heading off and we know they're probably not going to shy away from killing God, which is, good damn it, it's what I live for. (laughs) (laughs) Surprisingly, um, they use the line Republic of Heaven, which is pretty much the last, you know, part of the last lines of the Amber Spyglass, which was a bit like a word. It's it's the Yankee Rose of his dark materials, isn't it? (laughs) I was just a bit, yeah. But... I'm sure there's some other stuff that I was thinking about that I've never well, forgotten. It's, it's the whole business of Will and Will already being in puberty. And why does that matter when he doesn't have a demon? He does. Yes, yeah. he will. He will. Um, as you all know. So I think um, some of the things that I heard written about the whole um, why is Will a bit older thing is potentially because of the um, the upcoming storyline or the one that kind of happens, develops more in the Amber Spyglass where they get together yeah. and people thought it might be a bit weird to have a 12 and a th- like 13 year old like making out but then it doesn't make sense is it not sense. equally weird to have someone who's 15 and 12 yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean and, and you know it it takes them a moment to get there doesn't it because we've got subtle knife coming mm. and I always thought that they aged a bit between yeah. this book and the final book so I think there's a bit of like confusion. and they're going to visibly age in the TV series yeah. I think there's a little bit of non-consensus about how much they age throughout the books yeah it seems from because i'm reading the secret commonwealth now i think it's okay for me to say i feel like it's not a massive well, it's big spo- spoilers so yeah. it's fine um to say that i think she mentions being about 12 or 13 when she comes back okay so so potentially the whole thing took a yearish which seems bizarre but okay yeah. i mean it could have taken sure almost two years i guess but yeah. not two. i'd always assumed they were a little bit older yeah or, um, or maybe she was meant to be younger when she set yeah. off no i'm pretty sure she's 12 yeah. isn't she but i don't i don't see the 15 year old thing being as much of an issue as people making out because Thing thing with puberty is kids, <laughs> is it's that it has different ages. It do, it really does, and the whole point it doesn't. And Sarah likes older men. 
puberty hits at different ages and the most important factor is their relationship. So ultimately it is their relationship that mm. makes the demon settle, not puberty itself. Yeah. Because puberty is actually a really long period of time. People make out like it's like a little thing, but reality, it lasts for a large span of years. The thing, I have my own cynicism about why they've made him older. Would you like to know what it is? Yeah. I think that when they reveal his demon, it's already going to have settled because then they don't have to pay as much money for it and it's going to all be about Lyra's demon settling. Which kind of works anyway, let's yeah, be honest. It's fine. And if it allows them to save money to spend on other things, things <laughs> that we've criticised them not having the money for, then I think it's not a bad decision. Yeah, it, that would that would make sense. Yeah, I, I could that. be wrong. No, no, I think that's a, that's a fair point. Um, it could just literally be a casting decision that they casted. Yeah, they couldn't find an actor who was younger that could do yeah, it as well. So they were like... Part of the problem is, and I think you notice this with Roger, is that you get to that age with teenagers and boys look hella young in comparison to girls because they go through puberty at different ages. Uh, Women get the growth spurt and all the rest of it. And boys are like, like Roger looks like a little kid. Yeah, he really does. Whereas Lyra is clearly going into that age group of like going into the next level. She does look more mature than Roger. So in that sense, I mean, I think... Will and Lyra do kind of look of similar ages, even though they're obviously not actually to some extent. I'd I'd say that they all they they look less jarringly like an adolescent and a child than Lyra and Roger do. Yes, exactly. Um, But I I just think that maybe it's more for pragmatic reasons than storytelling reasons because Mm. you know if if there was no pragmatism involved, you would just make the entire adaptation the same as the book. But it's always pragmatic reasons why you can't do that, and I Mm. I don't see why this would be any different. Yeah, like you just cannot always stick to the story because it doesn't work for TV, and sometimes you've got to change characters a bit because you've got to get the right actor. Yeah, yeah. I suppose um, the chemistry between Lyra and Will has to be right because it yep. is the key sort of relationship in the book. And, you know, I'd be very interested to see their chemistry, actually, because Will and his mum, like they really worked on screen mm, together. They worked they as mother and son. The scenes with them were so strong. Yeah. I'm hoping for a similar strength between him and yeah. Daphne Keene. I'm excited to see that. I mean, I think a lot of people have a lot of affection for Will and Lyra, yeah. you know, their story in general, but especially their falling in love part, because it is a lot about like first love and teenagers and, you know, all of that stuff. And it gives you the warm and fuzzies. And I'm excited to go on that journey, journey again yeah. with them. Yeah. Um, so we're just a little bit closer now. And, yeah. You know, what's going to happen next? And I think actually I am quite excited that they're doing things differently because it means that the second series is going to have stuff in it that I'm not, prepared for that I don't know about so mm-hmm. um Lord Asriel is apparently going to be in it more yeah I guess he's going to be our kind of cutaway subplot that Will and his mum were this time or like Boreal was yeah so you know well, Boreal might still be a subplot because he's still going to be at large in the multiverse isn't he I yeah. mean Lyra they do eventually meet him under his alias in the other world yeah. Um, but yeah, we might still get him. I just, I hope they don't try and tell too many concurrent stories because I think that from this season, what I'd say is the the writing in the series is at its strongest when they make one kind of plot and one character arc the focus of an episode. When they don't jump around too, too much. Too much, yeah. When they're trying to fit too much in, mm. it gets pacing issues. You never really feel like you know a character very well. Yeah. Um, Which is interesting because... 
the novels really focus mainly on our our protagonists, yeah. Lyra and then Will and Lyra. So maybe by kind of trying to do these other character things and showing it from, you know, a wider perspective, yeah, you get to see new things and whatever, but it's also taken away a little bit from the that following the one character's yeah. story slightly. I mean, I suppose in the book you've got what's happening around Lyra is mainly the focus. Occasionally we jump away, mm. like yeah, when we bit. see the librarian and the master yeah. together without Lyra and stuff. And we also get the kind of narrator voice type thing from Phil himself. Um, but I think doing it that way in the TV series would just be too one one tonal. It would be too one dimensional mm. to work on telly. There is a line, a balanced line between keeping focus on the characters, like you said, I mean, really I, building them up, and also yeah, making it making sure it's interesting. And things it's, like this episode and episode four, I think, are a good model for how to balance it. Mm. Um, maybe they know that themselves i don't know mm. i mean i guess the thing is they had to pull in a lot especially in the early episodes of this season and it was probably never going to be perfect there was always going to be a trade-off somewhere mm. and i think the pacing suffered a little at times and i think that other things to do with budget that we've talked about before probably beyond the writer's control and the actors and all the rest of it but you know mm. hopefully they'll resolve them i i just i do see probably even more potential now than I did to begin with for for the story moving forwards. Mm. I do hope that the viewing figures are very nice when people start watching it on catch up and tonight in the States, because we're recording this on Monday. You know, I just don't decommission it. Let's see. Let's see. Hopefully the second season will go really Mm. well. I think that would be just worse like I think it'd be worse having it cancelled after Subtle Knife than having it just cancelled after Northern Lights I mean I'd be very if it got cancelled I'd be very surprised if anyone tried to do an adaptation for TV again I think that you'd probably get more in the way of stories inspired by it but not attempts to adapt it because you know if it, it it kind of failed as a film not financially but critically and in terms of a lot of pressure groups turning against it and so the film idea seems to have been dropped and if the TV idea kind of goes the same way and isn't successful for whatever reason and gets dropped, is anyone going to try and adapt it again? What's left to adapt it to? A video game? You know, like <laughs> yeah. this This could be our last chance to get a good, strong adaptation. And they're really trying hard to make it yeah. that. And like, but let's then, just let them do it to the end at least. But then the question is, does there need to be? And I mean, <sighs> I mean, we're talking about this on a podcast about it, but at the same time, like the original love for a lot of us, is the books. Yeah. And we will always have the books. I don't, yeah, I don't think there needs to be a successful adaptation, but I do like the fact that it could bring the story to a wider audience. Um, mm. And I think that there are people that will probably never read the books that might well enjoy the TV <laughs> show a lot. Yeah. And that's fine, especially if the TV show is done well and kind of carries the theme and the heart of the books, which it's doing a reasonable job of, let's be honest. I think that's why I've got a lot of time for it, even though sometimes I'm quite critical of it, is because it is an earnest effort to try and adapt the books. Mm. Kind of got to appreciate that at least. Yeah, it feels less cynical than the film. Oh, the film was just like, you know what's popular, Harry Potter? Do you know what was also a popular book? HDM. Yeah, but get rid of all the important stuff, though, because, you know, Christians won't like that. Oh, fuck me, Christians didn't like it anyway, we're shafted. <laughs> Great, well done, Hollywood. <laughs> um, so we've gone off a little bit with the spoilers and kind of mostly just kind of had a little rant. So <laughs> A little rant and a ramble. Is there anything else you want to talk about spoiler-wise? No. Mm, betrayal. I think that 
the TV series paints it quite clearly that they think the betrayal is Lyra bringing Roger to Asriel. Because mm, not everybody thinks that. Mm, what do you think the betrayal is? I think this may, this one makes more sense. I know some people think it's when Lyra leaves Pan on the shore in the Land of the Dead. Yeah, but they are reunited. Yeah, and also I feel like they didn't have a choice and I feel like that was important to do, whereas I think this is more... I suppose on the one hand you've got like, that's not necessarily a betrayal because it's for the right reasons and they get reunited. So it's just kind of like a see you in a bit pan. Mm. And it's heartrending because they don't necessarily know that they're going to be reunited at the time and so on. Mm. Whereas this one, you can say it's not really a betrayal because Lyra didn't really know she was going to do it. And I do know, you know, from interviews and stuff... Um, that Pullman writes quite organically and he writes it as it comes to him. And I wonder if maybe he never really planned what the betrayal was going to be. And that's why we can't quite pin down which of these things the betrayal is. Mm. But maybe he couldn't tell you which the betrayal was for certain. I'm not sure. Someone out there probably has got an interview where he says what he thinks it is or what he (laughs) says it is. Yeah. It's an interesting one because I think what happens with Roger does sort of change her. Yeah. A lot of Northern Lights, even the bits with the intersizing and things, it still feels fairly safe because no one they know gets hurt. Obviously, Tony does, but he's not a main character that's close to yeah. everyone. But this Tony feels like... Yeah, this is... Lest um, we forget. <laughs> this. Roger is our... Roger is like our Ned Stark moment, mm. wherein we real, realise that the characters are not safe, that this is big yeah. and scary. Yeah. And that's, therefore it would kind of make sense if that was it. That mm. was the, the betrayal. I mean, it seems palace. like that's what they've pinned it on so far. But we've not mm. got to the point where Lyra leaves Pam behind. So maybe they'll paint that as like an even bigger betrayal. And is that the betrayal? Maybe they will, rather than answering the question, try and make the TV audience keep asking it. Because, mm. you know, it's it's interesting to debate these things. And there probably is no truly definitive answer. I mean, Phil could give one. And I suspect that people would still sort of say, what I said is like, well, he writes it as it comes to him. So what if he's wrong? <laughs> it's, you know, like when, when a singer or whatever tells you what their song means and everyone goes, yeah, but it clearly doesn't mean Indeed that. that. Yeah. You're just being a cagey artist. <laughs> <laughs> I think some questions are better not answered. Yeah, sometimes I think it's better making your own kind of guesses about things. Kind of a a big one, I suppose, but kind of as rules, greater intentions. Yeah. He says he doesn't know what dust is, and yet he seems to think they are connected to the authority, despite yeah. not thinking they're original sin. Well, I mean, I know in the show he sort of says we could go to the source of dust and find out what it really is. Mm. But then when he's talking to Mrs. Coulter, he says about um, killing the authority. Mm. I mean, I think maybe he thinks the dust will lead to the authority, regardless of whether it's sin or not. Mm. Do you think he thinks the authority has sent it as a means for the magisterium to keep control. I don't yeah. know. What I think what I'm trying to say is why do we maybe think that Azrael has this knowledge and I know that you have some thoughts on oh, you who or about what Azrael is. Azrael being a fallen angel. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that is a theory. Um, let's call it a niche theory. But he's kind of bearing the name of a character from John Milton's Paradise Lost, the name of a fallen angel who was kind of in the original war with God. And there is a theory, I can't say it's just my theory, I know at least one of the scholar that's had it, um, that essentially Azrael is that fallen angel and he's come to Lyra's universe to kind of recreate original sin and 
undermine the authority and then go back and sort of finish the war with him. And there's a whole bit in the books that kind of underpins this, where the witches discuss Azriel's ability to plan these things, to know how to open a portal mm. with indecision when he's acting on his own. And to, where did he have the time to work all of this stuff out, to build all of this stuff, to make it all happen? He can bend time to his will and so on. And they're basically discussing that Azriel is some sort of supernatural being or has powers that he shouldn't mm. have. And you kind of put it together with his name with what he's out there to do, to go to heaven, to revolutionise heaven and take down the authority, you know, the, the new Republic mm. of Heaven. And it kind of makes sense. Yeah, I thought it made more sense with the fact that they, like I say, the, the Republic of Heaven line is something that Lyra says towards the end of the Amber Spyglass. Yeah. So having him say it implies some kind of knowledge about the structure of what is going on with, with the authority yeah. and the angels and things. Perhaps the TV show is leaning towards that idea that Azrael is not a mere man. Yeah. I don't know. It would be interesting if they did, because that would mean that maybe Phil had said something about that. Yeah, I mean, he is the executive producer, so he is signing off on the decisions. Yeah. I don't know whether he would actually interfere unless he thought, no, this is just totally against what I ever wanted. But, you know, he signed off on the film and still defends the film. That's bizarre to me. Yeah. Yeah, but, but you know, he probably just likes the fact that people like his work and want to adapt it. And let's be totally honest, it's cash money for him, isn't it, as well? As long as they're not shitting on what he's tried to do, then... Yeah, but doesn't the film kind of... Uh, I suppose, I don't know. I don't think the film I don't know what it's like it. to be an author, because maybe if I wrote something and they were like, I'll make a film of it, I'd be like, yeah, just go nuts. <laughs> well, I'll say on the topic of your art that even though people are demanding the ability to buy it, you keep refusing them. So you're probably a bit more scared <laughs> about commercialising your art than Phil is. I mean, he's a very successful author, and maybe he's willing to let filmmakers and TV makers do what they do with his work. Just, you know. Yeah. What can I say? I'm just a true artiste. Yeah. More integrity than Philip Pullman. <laughs> well, I think we've talked for long enough, to be honest. So do I. Damn near two hours, although Oof. it'll be edited down a bit. But this one was intended to be a bit of a hot take, so I'm not going to go through the hardcore editing I normally do of denoising it and stuff. So you will hear a bit of a bit of background noise and stuff, but that's fundamentally because the studio's out of action over Christmas, so I've got to do it all on my laptop where I just don't have the equipment at hand that I normally <laughs> would. Um... But we hope you've enjoyed this episode, yes. dear listeners. Please join us on social media, email yeah. us, look out for that list of names in the show notes, etc. Yeah, have a good Christmas. And a Not merry, just a good Christmas, a happy Christmas. A happy Christmas. Brilliant Christmas. We'll see you before the new year with the book podcast, but in any case, have a wonderful new year. We love you. Goodbye. Goodbye.